Beloved, three more parables remain for us to consider. And those three last parables are in the Olivet Discourse, which is the name for Matthew 24 and 25. These last three parables were not spoken publicly to the people, but rather were part of private instruction for the twelve disciples. And these last three parables concern the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are part of his final instruction and final warning concerning his second coming. Remember, in Matthew 24, the disciples wanted to know what was the sign of his coming. Matthew 24, verse 3, Tell us, they ask, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answers their question. He gives detailed instruction concerning the signs of his coming. But he also lays upon them a solemn calling. Because there's no point, beloved, knowing intellectually the signs of Jesus' coming. Knowing, as it were, the finer points of eschatology. There's no point knowing all of those things if you are not watching for Jesus coming. And these three parables then in Matthew 25 are the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, and then what is often called the parable of the final judgment. The first two are certainly parables. We know that they are parables because they begin this way. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto. And so Jesus here is making a comparison between the kingdom of heaven and then something earthly. And that's what a parable is, as we have seen. The same language is found in verse 14. At the beginning of the next parable, the parable of the talents, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country and so on. So we know that the first two in chapter 25 are parables. And the third section, which concerns the final judgment, is not perhaps called a parable, but it does have some features of a parable. And in this series, we shall treat it as a parable. Notice, too, that these parables in Matthew 25, which again I say were not spoken to the crowds in Israel, but were spoken to the disciples in private, these parables are applicable to us. Their primary application, beloved, is not to the unbelieving world, not to the heathen, but their primary application is to the members of the visible church and kingdom of God. That's how the parable begins that we consider this evening. 
Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And so in this parable, beloved, we are warned and we are instructed. Be like the five wise virgins. Avoid the fatal mistake of the five foolish virgins. Because, as Jesus explains at the very end of the parable, ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Notice then, watching for the bridegroom's coming. Watching for the bridegroom's coming. Notice first the idea and then the possibility and third, the reward or the outcome. The setting of this parable, like the parable of this morning, is a wedding, which, of course, is a joyous occasion. And the various elements of the parable are easily identified. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his coming that is eagerly anticipated. Christ is often called the bridegroom in Scripture, and his coming is in view in these chapters, chapters 24 and 25. Christ is called the bridegroom because he loves his church. The church is the bride. Christ died for his church, and Christ went to heaven in order to prepare all things for the salvation of his church. And so a wedding day is coming. And the enjoyment of the blessedness of salvation is, again, we saw this this morning, is the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19. Jesus is the gracious host. Jesus is the bridegroom. And in the parable, two entities represent the church, the guests of the wedding and the bride herself. Remember, the bride and the guests, both of those entities in Scripture represent the church. And so the idea is the bridegroom is coming for his beloved bride. Jesus is coming for his beloved church. Now, the bride is not mentioned in the parable again. And the bridegroom is really not the key figure in the parable either, although he is the focus, of course. But attention is drawn in this parable to the bridal party. The bridal party, which consists in ten virgins. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Ten is the number of completeness. And a virgin has the idea of purity. And these ten virgins represent the church as she exists in the world, waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. There are always in history ten virgins. The church 
consists of those whom God has given to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, those whom Christ loves, those whom Christ has redeemed with his precious blood, those whom Christ has called by his Spirit, those whom Christ has sanctified and separated from sin. And so, ten virgins is a very fitting picture of the church. These ten virgins, though, are such according to their profession and according to their outward conduct. By calling themselves ten virgins, they are saying, we, we ten, are pure, holy children of God. Paul describes the church in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, where he says, I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Ten virgins. But as the parable unfolds, we see that only some of the virgins are truly converted. Only some of the virgins are true believers, and only some of the virgins enter into the marriage at the end. And that brings us then to the wedding festivities in the Bible. They are very different from modern weddings. In our culture, the focus on the wedding day is on the bride. The groom, he waits nervously at the church, waiting for the bride to come. The guests are listening for the music to begin, the wedding march, here comes the bride. And as that music begins to play, they all turn around to look at the bride as she arrives. She has made herself beautiful, dressed in her finest clothing. It's her big day, the wedding day. But in the Jewish culture, the cry was not, here comes the bride, the cry was, the bridegroom cometh. The bridegroom cometh. And all the eyes, therefore, were not on the coming of the bride, but all the eyes were on the coming of the bridegroom. And the goal of the wedding then was the coming together of the bride and the groom. And this wedding day then was the climax, it was the end, it was the goal for much that had been prepared before. The Jewish wedding began with betrothal. We have in our culture engagement. A man gives a woman a ring, asks her to marry him. That's the engagement. In Jewish culture, the wedding was usually arranged. Parents sought out a suitable spouse for their child. And this match might have been arranged many years in advance. And then the day comes for the betrothal, which was a legally binding ceremony. For all intents and purposes then, the betrothed couple were married at that point. In our day, an engagement can be broken off 
and the ring can be returned. In Jewish culture, betrothed couples were legally married already. Infidelity then was viewed as adultery and only with extreme difficulty could a betrothal be broken. That explains the predicament of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. She, at that time, had been already betrothed to Joseph. And so, in the eyes of the law, she was already married to Joseph. And yet, she was found to be with child by the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, on hearing this, was legally entitled and was minded to break that betrothal. That is to say, to divorce her. And he would have, except that the angel Gabriel intervened and explained in a dream the true meaning of her being with child. But one thing had not yet happened. The betrothed couple did not yet live together under one roof. So they came together for this betrothal ceremony, and they were pronounced, as it were, man and wife. But then there was a period of time where they had to wait. And the actual coming together did not occur until the coming of the bridegroom to take his bride to his house. And from that moment onwards, this betrothed couple would live together. And while she waited for that day, the day between, or the day at the end of the betrothal period, while she waited for that day, she had to be faithful to her betrothed husband. And that's the period of time, beloved, described in this parable. A period of waiting. Waiting for the bridegroom's coming. That's the period of time, beloved, that we are in today. We are the church. We are betrothed to our husband, Jesus Christ. He has gone away after the betrothal to prepare for the great day of the wedding. We're waiting for him to come. And while we wait, it's our calling to watch and to be faithful and to keep ourselves pure for him. And during that period of time in the parable, these virgins, these ten virgins, were waiting and watching for the coming of the bridegroom. On the day of the wedding then, the bridegroom left his house and came to receive his bride. And so there were two processions one was a procession with the bridegroom, and the other was the procession with the bride. The bridegroom left his house with his friends. We'd call them groomsmen today. And his friends came with him, and they're carrying lights, and they're singing, and they're making merry in a festive, joyous procession towards the bride. At the same time, the bride then leaves her parents' house, where she had been living 
since the betrothal, and she also has her attendants. We would call them bridesmaids today. And they're also walking in a festive, joyous procession. So two processions, one from the bridegroom's house, one from the bride's house, and they're going to meet together at some point. And the goal was for the bridegroom to take the bride back to his house, which he had prepared for his bride. And then there would be this probably week-long party, festival, celebration of this coming together. And one of the roles of the bridegroom's attendants, the groomsmen, was to alert the people to the approach of the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And on hearing that cry, the bride's friends, her bridesmaids, the virgins in the parable, would go out to meet the bridegroom, holding aloft their lamps. They would then accompany him into the house to be with the happy couple. And there they would celebrate and eat and drink and enjoy music and merrymaking. That's the figure, the bridegroom, the bride, and the ten virgins. The spiritual reality then of this is the church as she waits for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ten virgins represent the waiting church. The waiting church as she is manifested in the history of the world. From one point of view, all of these virgins are the same. They took their lamps, verse 1, they went forth to meet the bridegroom. If you had seen these ten virgins then, you would have said, those ten virgins, all of them, all of them are believers. All of them truly desire to fellowship with the bridegroom. All of them are faithful. But as we shall see, there's a sharp spiritual difference between them. They all do the same thing. They all go forth with a lamp to meet the bridegroom, and that is their profession, their profession of a desire for the coming of the bridegroom. By going forth with their lamps, they are saying, I love Jesus Christ, and I seek his coming. In the parable, the lamp is significant there. The lamp is common to all the virgins. It's not the case that only the wise have lamps and the foolish have no lamps. All ten, the five wise and the five foolish, all of them have lamps. The difference is in the oil, not in the lamp. The lamp, then, is the outward profession of the church member. The lamp is the testimony by word and action that these virgins love Christ and are waiting for him. However, as it shall be revealed, five of them are hypocrites. Five of them have a false profession. 
and that shall be exposed on the last day. The ten virgins then look alike. They behave in an outward sense in the same manner. They all carry lamps. They're all called virgins. They're all members of the visible church in an outward sense. But, says Jesus, there is something significantly different between them. Verse 2 identifies the difference. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Wisdom is a spiritual gift. Wisdom is not the same thing as natural intelligence. Wisdom is the right use or the right application of knowledge. It is to live in accordance with knowledge and with reality. Wisdom enables someone to adapt his life to the great reality of the return of Jesus Christ, to live and to act in consciousness of that great reality. And wisdom is not natural to us. Wisdom is the fruit of the grace of God that the Spirit works in our hearts. And five of these virgins had the spiritual grace of wisdom. They were wise. And five of them lacked that spiritual grace of wisdom. They were foolish. Foolishness, the opposite of wisdom, is not stupidity or a lack of intelligence, but foolishness is a spiritual vice. It is wicked to be foolish. And our sinful flesh is full of foolishness, and God gives grace to fight against that foolishness, but foolishness fundamentally is the refusal to apply the knowledge of the truth. A foolish person knows that Christ is coming. These virgins all knew that Christ was coming. A foolish person refuses to adapt his life to that truth. And although he might confess with his mouth that Christ is coming, and although he might say he desires to see Christ at his coming, he does not truly live in the consciousness of it. A foolish person then does not have the Spirit of Christ. A foolish person is an unbeliever. In the parable, the five foolish virgins, despite their profession, are actually unbelievers. Now, how is it possible for someone to watch for the arrival of the bridegroom? And the answer is, it's only possible for one who has oil. Oil. That's the difference that Christ identifies in the parable between these two kinds of virgins. One kind was wise, the other kind was foolish, and their wisdom or folly are identified this way. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. You understand, of course, beloved, that a lamp without oil is useless. Imagine a lamp, oil lamps, powered by olive oil, burned. Imagine a lamp 
made of pure gold and you regularly polish it and you shine it so that other people might admire it look at my beautiful lamp look how it shines in the sunlight but if it has no oil beloved it cannot bring forth any light and therefore it is useless and these five foolish virgins then they had an outward profession of religion they had a lamp and they appeared good to men they went through the motions of religion you might say but they had no substance these five foolish virgins therefore did not have true faith they had a form of godliness but they denied the power thereof but the five wise virgins they brought three things a lamp vessels to store the oil and oil oil of course in the bible is often a symbol of the holy spirit oil here is an inner spiritual gracious preparedness which gives substance to this outward profession empowers one to live according to that outward profession and that oil cannot be bought or earned that oil we receive it freely from jesus christ as it flows to us by the holy spirit from the cross in reality every true believer has this oil because christ purchased it because god works it by the spirit in our hearts and because god is pleased to supply it to us constantly so that we are able by the power of the spirit to watch and to pray for the coming of jesus christ but the foolish virgins who knew all of this brought no oil they brought lamps but no oil and lamps are useless without oil the wise virgins bring lamps and vessels and oil and by doing this the foolish virgins although they claim to be prepared and they claim to desire to be in this wedding show that they're not prepared at all and that becomes clear when the cry comes at midnight behold the bridegroom cometh and they can't light their lamps notice in the parable that all the virgins fall asleep they all fall asleep and when the cry comes at midnight all of them wake up but only five of them have oil and so only five of them are ready to enter into the marriage feast and the solemn fact is beloved that these foolish virgins never had oil they never had spiritual life they were always hypocrites always pretenders always unbelievers in the visible church and their lack of oil is revealed when the bridegroom comes why did they bring no oil they brought no oil because they saw no need of it and they brought no oil because they assumed that they could use the oil of 
others. And thus they're guilty of presumption. They say to themselves, we will get oil, if needs be, from the common stock. We'll borrow oil from other people. And that's why when the bridegroom comes, they turn to their companions, the wise virgins, and say to them, give us of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But there is no borrowing of oil, beloved. There is no possibility of borrowing spiritual graces from other people. Each person must be prepared. You cannot borrow oil from the minister or from your spouse or from your parents or from your children. You personally must be ready with oil which you receive directly from Jesus Christ. You must repent and believe. Nobody else can repent or believe or prepare for Christ's coming for you. And this preparation was necessary, beloved, because of the delay. Notice the bridegroom tarried. This was unexpected. Perhaps they expected him to come around noon, maybe 2 p.m., maybe 4 p.m. But as the day grew longer, they realized he's not coming yet. And soon they begin to think, perhaps he's not going to come at all. And soon as it gets darker and darker, they begin to feel sleepy and they slumber and they fall asleep. And finally he comes at midnight. And so Jesus here teaches us two important things about his coming. First, Christ comes quickly and with signs, that's Matthew 24 especially. And second, Christ tarries or delays his coming. And those two things might seem like contradictions. How can you have a quick, delayed coming? But those two things are both true. Christ comes quickly in accordance with the eternal will and counsel of God. And yet Christ tarries, not because he is delayed, not because he's held up, but because many things must happen before he can come. The gathering of the church must happen. The filling up of the church's sufferings must occur. And the full development of wickedness must happen. There must be a great falling away. There must be the rise of Antichrist towards the end of human history. These things take a long time, especially now from our perspective. And this tarrying of Christ's coming then is a test for the church. All the virgins profess at the beginning of the parable that they love the Lord and they desire his coming. But how will they behave when he does not come at the time that they expect? When he delays and delays and delays until after midnight. In fact, he delays so long that all the virgins fall asleep. And that, of course, is a temptation for us. We're waiting. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. We know he's coming. He's promised us that he's coming. But we have been waiting, beloved, for over 2,000 years. And we wonder, when will he come? 
Why does he delay? And then the temptation is to say, well, I'll just do something else. We become spiritually drowsy. We neglect watching and praying. We fall asleep. And is that not a picture of the church in the last days? The last days of the last days? A church that is falling asleep? And so the important thing, beloved, is that we are prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. That we have oil in our lamp, as it were. That is to say, we live in daily expectation, in daily anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that our great longing in life and the great aim of our life is the return of Jesus Christ. It means that we are watching we are watching for any indication, any sign that Christ is coming. We're vitally interested in the signs listed in Matthew 24 as a bride is excited to hear the footsteps of her coming bridegroom. It means we believe in Christ. It means we live a life of daily repentance, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, praying fervently for the return of our Lord. It means our life is one of godliness, real spiritual godliness, not a mere outward show of religion, but a, a life of thankful obedience from the heart. And then our life matches our profession. We show ourselves spiritually ready to enter into the marriage of the Lamb. But five... We're not ready. Look at the miserable end of the five virgins, the five foolish virgins. They are shut out. The cry comes, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And that cry shakes all the virgins out of their slumber. And they all wake up and they realize that Christ is coming. He's just about here. And then they all realize they need to light their lamps. But the foolish virgins only notice at that point that they have no oil in their lamps. And they cannot light their lamps. They trim their lamps, but the five foolish virgins cannot light them. And they turn to the five wise virgins and they asked to borrow of their oil but the wise virgins refuse and the foolish said unto the wise verse 8 give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out but the wise answered saying not so lest there be not enough for us and you but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves and while they went to buy the bridegroom him. It's not, of course, that the wise virgins are mean or miserly, but they cannot help them because no one has oil that they can give to anyone else. And the only advice they can give these, these girls, these virgins, is go ye rather to them that sell. Now, who is going to be open at midnight to sell oil to these virgins? Well, we read 
that these virgins go off to buy and they come back and they've missed the bridegroom's coming. He arrived when they were away. And then we have an incredibly solemn conclusion to this parable for these foolish virgins. They're shut outside. And while they came to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. They said, did these five virgins, that they were waiting for the bridegroom. They said that they would join the festive procession to welcome him, but they were not ready. But how could they have been ready? How could they have fooled themselves from the beginning? They brought no oil. And there are people like that in the church. They go through the motions of external religion, but they do not really believe. And they deceive themselves that they are believers. And they say to themselves, we will get ready for the coming of Christ later. And frantically, the five foolish virgins stand outside the closed door and beg to be let in. But the Lord's answer is final. I know you not. Those are terrifying words, beloved. I know you not. And there will be many who were members of the church on earth who called themselves Christians while they lived on earth, many who on the last day will hear those words, I know you not. And that means, I do not have a relationship with you. You are not part of that blessed number whom I love, for whom I died and whom I have saved. You do not belong to me. You do not belong with me. You belong outside, forever outside. And the five wise virgins then, they enjoy great blessedness. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage and the door was shut. They were ready. They were ready because although their watching was not perfect, because they too fell asleep, they were ready because they remembered to bring the oil. And when the cry came forth, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye forth to meet him. When that cry came forth, they roused from their sleep. They trimmed their lamps. They fed their lamps with oil. They held their lamps aloft and they welcomed the bridegroom. They had these wise virgins had, received the grace of God. They had believed in Christ. They had more than, a tr than an outward profession. They had true spiritual life. And they enter then the marriage supper, not simply as guests, but as part of the bride. And their blessedness then 
is to enjoy everlasting fellowship and joy with the bridegroom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the essence of heaven, beloved. They went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. The door was shut to keep out the wicked. The door was shut to show us the eternal blessedness of heaven, the security of heaven. There will be no gate crashers to spoil the festivities of heaven. The devils and his angels and all unbelievers will be excluded. And there will be this intimate relationship of love between Christ and his church. And Christ then applies this at the very end of the parable in verse 13. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Watch, be alert, do not fall asleep. Pray for the coming of your Lord. Look for the signs of Christ's coming and keep oil in your lamps and you will be received into the eternal festivities of the wedding supper of Christ. Amen.